You can open to Luke chapter 18. We'll be in verses 18 through 30. Now we all, every day, are making calculations. We all are making choices, weighing sort of a cost-benefit analysis in our own minds, even simple decisions like, should I eat this Reese's heart that is 360 calories? You know, if I do this, it will have consequences later. I'll maybe have to exercise a few more minutes or more likely just deal with the added calories. Or what about the decision when we wake up in the morning? You know, hunters and fishermen are a little bit renowned for being, you know, it's hard to wake up at 7 a.m. to go to work, but 3.30 to get the rifle out, no problem. I suppose all of us sort of understand these, these calculations and these sort of decisions. We weigh the cost and we weigh the outcome. Unfortunately, we often do not make the wise choice. We're often driven about by, by the, the immediacy of the moment or the present rather than what is wise. Well, this morning, we see in Luke 18 a man with, with the ultimate scenario. The ultimate cost-benefit predicament. He desires eternal life. But he does not see Jesus as eternally worthy of his entire life. And so he walks away disappointed. And so this morning as we, as we look at our text in Luke 18, since, since much of the text is sort of driven by questions, Our points will be worded as questions this morning. And the first question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Look there in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This story is often called the the, the story of the rich young ruler. That's sort of, you know, kind of taking various details from the different Gospels and and putting them together. You know, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account. They all account for us that he is rich. Matthew is the one who supplies us with this detail that he is young. And then in Luke, we, we get this title of a ruler. So you sort of put these stories together, and you get the story of the rich, young ruler. I, I appreciate that the ESV is like, nope, Luke doesn't tell us he's young, so we're not going to call him young in the title there. It's just called the rich ruler. But most of you will know it as the rich, young ruler. And so this guy approaches Jesus. You know, depending on how young he is, it might indicate that he's not a ruler of the synagogue like Jairus, who we met earlier in the Gospel of Luke. That role would be typically reserved for an older man. It is likely that he is a civil leader, and if his perception of himself is even close to reality, that he's moral then he would have been highly respected by those around him. as He, he has demonstrated outwardly this dedication to the law of the Lord. And so he would have been a highly respected man in, in the city. 
And so he comes to Jesus with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you've been with us as we've studied the Gospel of Luke, you know this is not actually the first time that this question has been proposed to Jesus. We saw the same question asked from from a, a religious lawyer in John chapter 10, verse 25. Of course, that guy was trying to trip Jesus up a little bit. This man, the rich young ruler in chapter 18, doesn't seem to be trying to to provoke Jesus or to trick Jesus or to set Jesus up for a trap. He wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life is, is shorthand for the experience of those who will experience the joy of God's presence for all eternity. As a pious man who knew the law and the Old Testament, he would have likely been familiar with a passage like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt or judgment. So the question before this man is not, Will I live forever? Everyone lives forever. Our, 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 we are created as eternal beings. The question is, where and in what state will I live forever? And so his question for Jesus is, what must I do on that resurrection day, on that last day when I stand before the Lord, that I might inherit his presence, that I might inherit the joy that is, that is linked to the presence of God? In your right hand is the fullness of Joy. That's the question. What do I do to avoid eternal judgment instead of and instead be granted eternal life? Now it's important for us to notice what he actually asks here. He says, What must I do? What must I do to inherit this sort of eternal life? Inherent in his question is that there's some ability. There's some thing that once completed, if I can just do this, then I can have the confidence that I will gain eternal life. And the reason I say that, the reason I think it's fair to say that, and and we're not reading too much into one word here in Luke, is that's the way Matthew understands the question in his gospel. And the way he recounts the, the telling of the story, the question is, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life. So that's the question. What's the thing I have to do? What's the one act I have to perform? But Jesus, he, he, he wants to address first, before answering the question, the title that this man gave to Jesus as he approached him. Good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus is so wise and brilliant in the way he approaches people that he picks up on the use of this word good, and this becomes part of him directing the rich young ruler to the truth. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus immediately confronts this man's casual use of the word good. You know, this guy may even expect the, the, the favor to be returned. You know, you've seen, uh, you know, two, two people complimenting one another, and it just goes back and forth, and it gets out of hand. And he may expect that. Oh, good young ruler. 
Here's what you have to do to inherit eternal life. And we can admit that, that good is a, a, a relative term, right? We call God good, and then we might call Burger and Bun good. But Jesus goes to this absolute sense of the word good. In that sense, the, the, the sense in which you need to be good to gain eternal life, there is none good. Only God is good. And he's pulling from, from the truths of the Old Testament. Nahum 1.7 says the Lord is good. Or words that are repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. You know, we can quote Psalm 106.1, but really they're, they're found all over the Old Testament. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. In fact, we read it in our psalm this morning at the end of Psalm 11 here. If I can get to it. For the Lord is righteous. He's perfectly righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. So he's challenging this, this casual use of the word good. And so he, he, he's pushing, I think, the rich young ruler in, in a couple ways. First, he's saying, he, he's challenging to consider, why would you direct that title at me? Why would you call me good? Jesus is, is kind of laying it out before him. You called me good, and, and only God is good, so why did you uh, give that title to me? Is it an appropriate title for me, it's an invitation for the rich young ruler to reflect on his own question and his own language. If Jesus is indeed good and only God is good, what does that mean concerning the person of Jesus? Well, we've seen it answered explicitly throughout the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is indeed God. He is God in the flesh, the eternal Son of the Father. But the young man is, is challenged here. Why would you direct that at me? There's no sense in which Jesus is saying, that's not true of me. He's challenging the rich young ruler to reflect on the title. You know, as I, as I read and studied for this passage, there was so much fight and debate about, like, why would Jesus respond the way he did? And there was so much discussion about it that, that, that it seemed to me that oftentimes one of the main thrusts of what Jesus is doing was actually missed. You know, the whole point of the whole conversation is missed if we just debate, like, what is Jesus doing here with this answer? What we see clearly in the text is that Jesus flat out, from the beginning of the conversation, tells the rich young ruler, you are not good. Only God is good. But the rich young ruler doesn't think that way. He, he misses the implication of, of Jesus' question here and his statement about the goodness of God. And so what does Jesus do? Then he, he points him, he directs him to the law of the Lord. One of the ways you can know and understand and see the, the goodness of God is to look at the law of the Lord. You can look at the moral nature of God found in the law. For Jesus, the very definition of God's goodness is the will of the Lord. So in a discussion about goodness and, and, and trying to direct this man for him to see that he lacks the goodness that he needs, 
Jesus takes him to the law of the Lord. Specifically, he lists five of uh, the, 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 the latter part of the Ten Commandments, you know, dealing with adultery and murder and stealing and lying and honoring parents. You know, these are all related to this command that Jesus has given earlier in the Gospel of Luke to love your neighbor. And so we see this this overlap then. We, We mentioned that this isn't the first time Jesus has received this question. In chapter 10, What did he point the the lawyer to? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here he's pointing them to this this second part of the law, the love your neighbor as yourself part of the law. Here's where you can see what goodness is. And sort of measure yourself up against what, what God considers good. And so the man, missing what Jesus said about only God being good, and missing the point of the Old Testament law, actually proclaims that he has kept all of these since his childhood. Revealing that he has taken the law of the Lord all too lightly. He sees it primarily as a means, like many of the Pharisees did, to elevate himself above others and to see how he measures up, not uh, not to God, but to others, like the Pharisee uh, earlier in chapter 18. He didn't understand what James makes clear in the New Testament, that to offend in one point of the law is to be guilty of breaking the entire law because the the, the standard of measurement is not how do I measure up against others, but how do I measure up against the perfect revealed law of the Lord. And so he demonstrates, if we think contextually about this passage, he demonstrates that he views himself like the 99 that need no repentance. He sees himself like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother thought he deserved better treatment than the younger brother because he had served his father all these years. And he's like the Pharisee who marched into the temple and thanked God that he's not like everyone else who is a sinner. He's convinced of his own uprightness. He looks Jesus in the face and says, if obedience to the law is what makes me righteous, then I've done that. I've kept those. Like many in Israel, he is guilty of what Paul would write later in the book of Romans, seeking to establish his own righteousness. Not looking to God for his righteousness, but seeking to establish establish his own righteousness. And so Jesus keeps pressing on. He tells him in verse 22, one thing you still lack. And you can can imagine this young man's joy sort of rising in his heart. Finally, we got past sort of the introductory stuff that I've already taken care of. I've read the introduction. I've taken that test. I've passed the test. Now give me the one thing I still lack. Give me the real answer. I will do that thing, and I will guarantee eternal life. So Jesus says, here's the one thing you still lack. Sell everything you have. Distribute it to the poor, and come, follow me. As we read this text, we've already sort of argued for, for what the law does and the purpose of, one of the purposes of, the law, but many have wondered why Jesus didn't answer 
the way Paul answered a similar question in Acts 16, right? From the Philippian jailer. He asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Why doesn't Jesus just just say that? Because he's, he's approaching the rich young ruler and trying to get him to see the nature of his failure to keep the law so that he will see his need to throw himself at the mercy of God. See, Jesus is, is asking the question that was proposed to him. What, what, what must I do? Well, you must be righteous. You must be good. If you do this... If you keep this law perfectly, then yeah, you're, you're good. What you need is moral perfection to enter the kingdom of God, to gain eternal life. So Jesus' goal seems to be to put the weight of the law on the man so that he can see that he has indeed not kept the law of the Lord, that he is indeed not good. He's helping the man to see that only God is good. Only God is good. Because he sees himself as one who has kept the law. And Jesus begins with that. He, he began with sort of that second part of the Ten Commandments that deals with love of neighbor. You know, those would be, you know, at least outwardly somewhat easier to measure. And so when he assumes that he's good there, Jesus goes for, for sort of, you know, lack of a better term, the knockout punch in commanding him to sell everything to give it all up, to distribute it to the poor, Jesus points out to the man that he has failed to even keep the first commandment and the tenth commandment, to not covet. He has failed to live in such a way that there is no other God before God Himself, before Yahweh. You know, someone once said, the problem wasn't that he had great possessions. It that, it's that his great possessions had him. The problem is that this, this man, like all men, is that he is an idolater. He wanted to do what Jesus said was impossible. He wanted to serve God and money. So don't misunderstand Jesus saying, Oh, good, you've checked all the boxes. If you do this thing, you'll be fine. He's exposing the idolatrous heart of the rich man. In other words, this is a call for the man to turn away from that and to turn to following Christ. Let go of your money. Let go of it and come and follow me. So so we should ask, right? What's going on here? Is Jesus calling everyone to, to sell everything they have and give it to the poor? If He is, then that's, what we should, that's exactly what we should do. We should just call time out on the sermon right now and go list everything on Marketplace. But we should ask that. Did we sin this morning by driving our vehicles to this nice church building that we could sell and give it all away? Well, this isn't. A a universal command, again, if we understand Jesus' words, this isn't a universal command that if followed results in going to heaven. As as if a life of asceticism is what earns you the right to enter the kingdom. That is to misunderstand 
Jesus, that is to misunderstand the Gospel of Luke. In fact, we'll see in chapter 19 that Zacchaeus comes to Christ. Salvation comes to his household. And he gives a lot back. But not all of it. He doesn't sell everything and join Jesus' traveling team. So like a master counselor, Jesus is revealing this man's heart. And when the verdict drops, this man is guilty of worshiping a, a, a little tiny God called money. He's an idolater. And that's true of every person that is born. No one can accurately look at themselves and say, you know what, I'm doing pretty well. I think when I stand before God, I will point out all of my righteous deeds, and God will be just so overjoyed to to be in my presence. The truth is we're all guilty of this idolatrous desire. We are all guilty of living for, being driven by, being controlled by something other than God. Could be money, could be lust, could be power, could be comfort. And so Jesus puts this man in a position. Will you turn from that and will you follow me? He's put in a position to choose between his love of money and following Christ and gaining eternal life. And he chose money. If you're not a Christian this morning, it's, it's worth asking the question, what is it? What is it that I'm clinging to so tightly that if Jesus said, give it all up, you'd walk away like the rich young ruler, saddened? And that is the response of this man in verse 23. Since he was extremely rich, he could not imagine giving that up. He couldn't imagine giving it up and following Jesus. Before we get to our second question, it's important for us to notice in the text that sadness does not necessarily equal repentance. Right? Paul talks about worldly grief versus godly grief. The man is sad, but that is not an indication of a repentant heart. He's not sad over his sin. He's not sad over his idolatry. He's not sad over his inability to keep the law. He's not sad over what that means for him in light of, I cannot stand in front of the God who is good because I am inherently not good. He is sad that he cannot serve God and money. He's sad that he can't benefit and serve his little God because he's in idolater, and he refuses to turn from it to Jesus. So if this is true of the rich young ruler, that he's, he's sad and he's an idolater, if it's true that, that this, this man, who again can, can look at his life, and he's outwardly moral enough to at least say, you know what, I've checked those boxes, Jesus. If it's true of this man that he he walks away sad and that he is an idolater, then we get the next question that that the disciples ask. Then who can be saved? If this man can't be saved, who can be saved? 
The disciples asked this question actually in response to something that Jesus says. You know, after he, he looks at the rich man, he sees that he is saddened. He sees that he has made up his mind to cling to his, his idol. And so after seeing the reaction of the rich man, Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. One of the ways that, that we're being shaped as, as people, as God's people, by the Gospel of Luke is how we think about and treat and view money. You know, we've already argued that the, the problem with the young man is not that he had money, but that he worshipped money. Right? But sometimes I think we're so quick to sort of make that leap to maybe get ourselves off the hook. We say, oh, good, money isn't inherently sinful, so I'm good. Right? We're good at that little move to, so that we don't have to ask about our own heart, how do I think about money? How do I treat my own money? In Luke's gospel, money is like a handicap. It is hard to feel helpless and dependent like the children in Luke 18, 15 through 17. It's hard to feel helpless and dependent before Jesus when you have so much to depend on when it comes to wealth and possessions. You know, Jesus told the church at Laodicea that they are lukewarm. Right? And, and, and many of us know that passage where Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, so I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But do you, know, do you know why they were lukewarm? Revelation 3.17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. They were depending on their wealth, and so they could not see what John goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's so easy to rely on, on money because it provides so much that you don't truly see your dependence on the Lord. You know, you younger folks who are just starting out, maybe newly married, or maybe you're hoping to be married in the new future, just, just recognize you don't actually have to have money to live for it. So don't build your life around it. Don't build your life on the, on the comfort of riches. Center your life on Christ. I tell young couples in premarital counseling, like, start giving when you're poor. And we're, um, we almost all start out poor. right? Live radically generous now so that when you actually get some money, it will just be the, the, the flow of life. This is what we do with our money. We, we're generous with it. We give. For all of us this morning, we are reminded not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. That's one reason we would say that money is not inherently sinful because Paul's addressing believers in 1 Timothy when he says, tell the rich people not to trust in that. It's fleeting. 
We've already seen in one of the other parables of Jesus that the cares of this world, the things of this world, threaten to draw you away from Jesus. So fix your eyes. Paul says again in 1 Timothy, fix your hope on Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the solid ground on which our faith is established. Everything else, everything else is like building on sand. And so the same reason that it is difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom is the same reason that that money poses a threat to your faith, for your reliance on Christ for all things. And so Jesus goes to this, that that he just keeps coming back to in the Gospel of Luke, and that's why we keep coming back to it, this idea of money and the threat it poses. And Jesus follows it up with, with a somewhat comical illustration that it's difficult, it is, it is so difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God that indeed it is actually impossible. It's actually impossible. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, it's hard enough to put a thread through a needle, right? But Jesus goes to the the biggest animal in their context. You know, there weren't a lot of elephants running around Israel. So he goes to the biggest animal. It's easier for a camel to be threaded through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know... Somebody, like a long time ago, I think like 11th century, said, you know what, this is, this is a reference to a gate that was outside of Israel, and in order for a camel to get through this gate, they, they called this gate the eye of the needle, in order for this camel to get through, the, through, the, through this gate, you know, you, they would have to remove the burden from the camel. And the camel would have to get really, really low and crawl through this low gate. And it was really hard for camels to do that. And you know, this made for some great preaching, right? Remove your burden. Humble yourself and get low. Enter the gate with difficulty. Right? You could preach that. But the goal isn't what makes for good preaching, right? The goal is exposition of the text. And so there's two problems with, with that. One, there was no gate. There was no gate called the eye of the needle. In fact, in, in Mark's account, he uses a different word for needle, which if he were describing a specific gate, you would expect Matt, or Mark and Luke to agree on the name of the gate. But if they're just talking about a needle, then yeah, you can use two different words to describe a needle. So that's the first Problem, right? There is no gate. But there's, there's, there's a bigger problem. The, the fact that that would totally undermine Jesus' whole point. Not that, not that it's hard for a camel to get through a small spot. It's that it's impossible. It's impossible to put a, a camel through the eye of a needle, and it's impossible for a rich man to be Saved, And that's how the disciples understand this statement. And so they ask, if, if the rich young ruler can't enter the kingdom, 
Who can be saved? If, if this guy can't make it in, who can make it? Notice Jesus is still dealing here with eternal life. He's dealing with the kingdom. He's dealing with what the disciples say, being saved. Those terms are used in this text interchangeably. Gain eternal life, inherit the kingdom, be saved. It's good for us to be reminded that this is still what Jesus is addressing. He hasn't moved on to, you know what would make you a super disciple? You know what that would make you a super follower of Christ? You know, you're you're already in, right? But man, if you really want to be faithful, sell it all and come and follow me. He's, not deal- he's still dealing with eternal life. He's still dealing with saved. He's still dealing with entering the kingdom of God. And so the disciples are confused. Man, if this rich guy who keeps the law can't get in, who can get in? You see, there's a bit of, a bit of prosperity gospel interwoven in, in rabbinic culture, Jewish culture. We've already talked some about this in the Gospel of Luke, that most people would just assume if you have money, you're blessed. If you don't have money, you're cursed. We've seen that. And we've seen how it's reversed, that Lazarus is with Abraham, and the rich man is in Hades. But that that sort of cultural understanding is still present. And the disciples ask, man, if this rich guy who seems to be blessed by God and is moral, if he can't make it, who can? And the answer is no one. No one. Unless God intervenes. Look there at verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. No one can be saved. No one can enter the kingdom. No one can gain eternal life apart from the intervening work of God Himself. No one can become dependent on God. No one can admit his or her helplessness before God. No one can enter. No one can be saved. No one can gain eternal life apart from God Himself. God, who works all things after the counsel of His will, can overcome the hardness of heart that is demonstrated in the rich young ruler. Who can be saved? No one. It's impossible. Except with God. Except with God. He can overcome a cold and a hard heart. And that's what the rich young ruler needed. Jesus driving at his heart driving to expose his idolatrous heart. What did he need? He needed a new heart. He needed to see that he hadn't kept the checklist that he thought he did. So it's only possible if God intervenes. From beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, to quote Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. Paul says in Romans 8, and those whom he predestined, right, eternity past, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He, 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 he did it. Salvation is of the Lord. Again, maybe you're outside of Christ this morning and you're wondering, can God save me? Perhaps you feel the weight of your sin, even as you think about only God is 
good. Maybe you're interested in Jesus, but you're so enslaved by your sin that you wonder if he could save someone like you. Well, what is impossible with man? What is impossible with man is possible with God. Or perhaps this morning, and probably true for all of us, there's someone that is close to you, that you love, that you care about. And as far as man is concerned, you say there's no way. There's no way. You know, in our Acts 2 group, just a couple weeks ago, we were sharing with each other, you know, here's some people that, that we love, you know, that, that we would be praying for each other, that our loved ones would come to Christ. And two people in our group shared some names that were particularly close to them, and we so longed for them to come to know Christ. And uh, Wayne launches into his testimony about coming to Christ at the age of 52. And he says, God can save them. And sometimes he chooses for his own purposes to do it later in life. And he reminded us of the power of the gospel. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel saves. It can break these idolatrous desires. God uses the proclamation of the gospel to draw people to himself, to open their eyes to see the glory of Christ. That they wouldn't go away sad, but that they would see Christ for who he is. They wouldn't resist that. They would gladly fall before Christ and embrace him in faith. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He is the author of our salvation, the author of our faith. Well, thirdly, this morning, we've already pointed out that Jesus' command to sell everything is not this, this binding expectation on every person everywhere, but what is binding is a willingness to turn from whatever it is that, that, that holds you and turn to Christ. It's called repentance to be willing to give it up to follow him. So we may not be as rich as the rich young ruler, but we don't get to say, oh, wow, I'm glad I'm poorer than he was so that I can come to Jesus. So we end by asking this morning, why would anyone follow Christ? Is it worth it to follow Christ? Look at verse 28. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So prompted by Jesus' words to sell everything and follow Jesus, Peter reminds Jesus that he and the other disciples have actually done that. They've, they've turned their back on those things and they've followed Christ. And I know we like to pick on Peter a little bit, and it'd be tempting to want to read into his words here a sense of pride, but I'm not, I'm not convinced it's, it's a boast. I think he's just sort of looking at the facts and saying, hey, we did that. We did that thing. Even though it was impossible in themselves, God did it. Peter's simply stating that they have left everything and followed Jesus. 
And so Jesus takes this statement from Peter and he turns it into an opportunity to speak of the rich blessings associated with following Christ. He says there are blessings in this life. Jesus talks about in verse 29, leaving house or spouse or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom. You know, it's, it's important for us to know, I think in our, in our culture, that Jesus isn't talking about abandoning your responsibilities to your family. Right? That's not what Jesus is getting at. We have to remember that as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, in our next paragraph, Jesus is going to say, they're going to kill me. Right? There's tons of opposition to Jesus. There's tons of people that want Jesus gone and killed. And there's, there's animosity towards his followers. You see that when Peter denies Jesus. Why does he deny Jesus? He doesn't want people to know he follows Jesus. There might be consequences for following Jesus. So this, this, this animosity would put potential followers of Christ in a predicament. You might lose your spouse. You might lose your mother or your father as they disown you for following that radical named Jesus. And so Jesus is reminding them that even if your commitment to Christ, even if your commitment to Christ causes family to walk away, friends to walk away, if if people distance themselves from you, think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 for, for a wife that comes to know Jesus. Right? There's a chance the husband might not have you anymore. Maybe a spouse rejects you because, maybe even because you won't engage in the same sort of sin that you used to, that sort of brought you guys together in the first place. Jesus says in a situation like that, you gain more than you lose in Christ. And I love that there's no exception to Jesus' words. In verse 29, he says, there is no one. There's no exception to this. If you're wondering, man, am I the one that gave up too much that it's not worth it? I don't gain more in return for Christ. There is no one. There's no exception to the rule. There's nothing you can give up for Christ's sake that you won't look back and say, I've gained infinitely more than I lost. I gained infinitely more than I lost. The reality is, though, for most of us, we live in a pluralistic society. Very few of us were faced with, is my family going to abandon me? Is my wife going to leave me? Is my spouse going to walk out? Are my siblings going to disregard me? And that's not all bad. There's some things to be thankful for there. But we do get the reminder this morning that we get the rich fellowship and blessing that God creates when he unites people to Christ he unites them together and you get a new family in the church of Jesus Christ every member of this church would say I've I've gained more than I lost and one of the blessings in this time is mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters in the faith who we get to worship the Lord together with Jesus says there's blessings in in this life. Again, not not the prosperity gospel sort of blessings that some people might want to read in the text. It's more like you get this. You get this. 
And you get to weep with those who weep, and you get to rejoice with those who rejoice. And you get, you younger people get older people speaking into your life. You get fathers in the faith and mothers in the faith and brothers and sisters to encourage you and speak the truth of God's word into your life. You get, you get this. You receive many more times in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Blessings in this age, but in the end we receive eternal life. The reality is coming to Christ will cost you, but it will never impoverish you. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to the kingdom of God like a pearl in a field. And if you find out that that field has that pearl in it, what do you do? You go sell everything so that you can afford that field. And you lose everything. You sell everything you have. You have nothing until you buy that field. But it's worth it. Because you get the, the pearl of, that, that is infinitely valuable. In Christ, through the work of Christ, we might have eternal life. Again, that's, that's, that's being saved from the judgment that is to come, saved from the wrath of God by trusting in Jesus that He took that wrath as the substitution for you. And for all those who turn to Christ and trust in Him and rely on His work and not your own work, God credits you with the righteousness of Jesus so that when you stand before God, He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ because it's been credited to your account. And it's worth it. You know, the rich man kept his money, but he walked away sad. Jesus says, you disciples, you've given, you've given all this stuff up for my sake. And you will be rewarded many times over in this life and in the age to come, you will be given eternal life. Why would, why would anyone follow Christ? Well, because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, we, we should be careful that we don't so emphasize just, just follow that we lose sight of the one who is making the command. We don't want to lose sight of me in the command to follow me. Unlike the rich young ruler, unlike us, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. He kept the whole law. He perfectly loved God and he loved his neighbor impeccably. Think about that. Never stumbling, never a, 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 a thought, never a sinful word. Man, if we, go, if we could go a day, Never a sinful attitude, never a law-breaking action, never an irreverent thought towards the Father, perfect righteousness as the Son of God, yet He has taken on the curse of sin on that cross. You can throw yourself at that. You can, you can turn away from your own goodness. You can turn away from anything in this world to be treated by God as if you've kept the whole law. Not because you did, but because Christ did in your place. And as believers, we can walk out of here confident that we are, if you're in Christ this morning, that you are forever surrounded and standing on the justifying grace of God. That He has done everything necessary for, for your son to be forgiven, past, present, 
and future. That you don't move in and out of a right standing before the Father because Christ doesn't move in and out of a right standing before the Father. By God's grace, we enjoy not only the blessings of God's family, but we have the certain hope of eternal life with God. The very one who has made this possible for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would humble our hearts to receive your word. Would you move our minds to meditate on the gospel? Would you move in hearts to change them? In Jesus' name, amen.